Good morning. It's good to see you. It's good to be together. It's good to get to worship together. And it's good to know that we've got people online, too. Um, um, I'm asking hundreds of you to get up out of your seats. And, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm sorry. I've got a game going on in my head all the time, and sometimes I forget to not let you all in on it. Um, it... it I am doing a series that I'm calling Right Into the Sunset because this is my last series as pastor at Grace after 19 years as lead pastor. And, and I, I've mentioned before, I literally sat down in a couple of minutes and said, what are, the, what are the things I want to make sure we say as we're leaving? And that's how this came about. So the first one was from Isaiah 40, a go-to passage for me. And the point of that is, the, the catch line of that is, behold your God. Look at your God. See your God. Because the starting point of all of it is God. There's a fundamental question that every human being has to answer. And who's going to be God? Am I going to acknowledge the God of the universe who created all things? All powerful, all knowing, all, um, all everything. You know, the creator God. Or am I going to be God? Because that's really fundamentally the question. Is he God or am I God? Now you think, well, there are idols too, but we create our idols. And by virtue of creating them, where are their gods, right? Uh, the fundamental question all of us has to answer in life is, who's going to be God? Are we going to acknowledge the God who created all things? Or are we going to somehow insist that he has to submit to our will? And so, the book of Isaiah, in the midst of all of the judgment of the nation of Israel, he says, comfort your people, and the, what he comforts with is look at your God, and he's a God who is all-powerful, pictured as a mighty warrior, but also all-caring, pictured as a shepherd. And that's the God we're called to know. Then the next week, we looked at the book of Proverbs, because if, if, if the first question is, who is God? The second question is, so What? If God is God, then what difference does that make? And the book of Proverbs says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord, knowing God is the beginning point, and that leads to wisdom, which is in the Old Testament defined as living well, living skillfully. And the book of Proverbs essentially instructs us on how the knowledge of God is intended to impact every area of our life. And you read the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job, some of the Psalms, and then the wisdom literature of the New Testament, the Sermon on the Mount, the book of James, and, and you, you realize that the fear of the Lord impacts every aspect of our life. Every aspect of our life, whether it's our relationships, our wealth, our health, our diet, everything is touched on by the knowledge of God. And, and if we want to live well, it begins with fear of the Lord, the knowledge of God, and then living that out in every area of life, which the Bible calls wisdom. Today is the pivot point. Today is the most important one of the five because today we go to the essence of our message, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, how do we respond to this? What are we supposed to do? How, how do we know God? How do we relate to God? Um, for that matter, how do we please God? To answer that question, we're going to go to Romans chapter 1. Romans in the New Testament 
I had a professor in seminary said, it is pure Paul. What he meant by that is every other book that Romans, that Paul writes in the New Testament to a church is responding to problems in that church. This will shock you, but in the first century, churches had problems, unlike today. And, and so, every one of the epistles of the, Old, of the New Testament that Paul writes, he is aware of something going on in that church and he's responding to those. Contrary to that, the book of Romans is written to a church he's never met. He's only heard about it. And so, he's not trying to answer any issue. He's just laying out for the Roman church the essence of Christian theology. It is pure Paul. And, and when you look at the outline of the book of, of Romans... Verse, chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 are the theme of the whole book. And those verses are about the gospel. So we're going to start reading in verse 8 of chapter 1. Follow along with me. First, Paul says, I, after the introductions, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. Notice that what they are known for is not how good they are or anything else, it's their faith. But because Rome is the center of the universe, effectively at that point in time, you know, you've heard the line, all roads lead to Rome. That was literally true. One of the reasons Jesus came when he did was God waited until the time when Rome would build roads around the world that created an opportunity for the gospel to be spread. So when a church was founded in Romans in Rome and people in Rome started to turn into Jesus, that spread throughout the whole Roman Empire. And Paul said, all of the empire is hearing about your faith. And the God whom I serve, verse 9, with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of his son is my witness how constantly I remember you. Notice how Paul identifies himself, how he acknowledges who he is. I'm the guy who preaches that gospel and serves him with my whole heart. In my prayers at all times, I pray that now at last by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. I really, really want to see you. Verse 11, I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that I plan many times to come to you, but I've been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I had among the other Gentiles. Because I'm obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to wise and foolish. That is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. Notice, Paul has already given them a sense of what he is all about. He is all about preaching the gospel. Now, verses 16 and 17... I am not ashamed of the gospel. That phrase has always puzzled me. Does Paul really need to tell us he's not ashamed of the gospel? I mean, the guy is a maniac when it comes to the gospel, right? He's maniacal in his commitment to the gospel. The Apostle Paul is second only to Jesus as one of the most, as the most significant human being that's ever lived when you look at what he accomplished. He took the message of Christianity and spread it to more peoples to have more impact than any other human that's ever lived. He, he broke down barriers by his incredible knowledge, his commitment, but more than anything by his spirit-filled obedience. The Apostle Paul changed the world. So why in the world would he need to say, now I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Are we ashamed of the gospel? 
Well, I got curious, and so I, I looked up how this is used. Let me read to you some examples where Scripture refers to this issue. 1 Corinthians 1.18, the message of the cross is foolish to those who are perishing, but to we who are being saved is the power of God. Sometimes we're ashamed of the gospel because we don't want to be known as fools. We don't want to be known as fools. Every once in a while I get on Facebook. I, I only use Facebook to, to honestly to wish you merry, happy birthday. I mean, that's what I do. I, I, every day I get notifications of all my Facebook friends who have, have birthdays, and if I know them, I say happy birthday. That's, that to me is the best use of Facebook. Um, um, but the other day I was looking at it, and, and someone that we know well who's not a follower of Christ went into this rant about the insanity, the stupidity of this idea that God would come down in human form and that by his death on the cross, that would somehow alleviate the problem of sin in the world. I mean, he just went into this whole rant of how obviously stupid that is. And, and to the unsaved, it is strange. It's, it's borderline foolish, right? Especially if, if God is not your God, but if we make the rules, then why would God be doing all of that? What, what, what? And, and most of us who have been in the marketplace, been in school, public schools, been out into the world, have experienced those opportunities to find out that someone you met, someone that you know, believes that this following of Jesus, this belief in his gospel is honestly kind of foolish. That's one reason people can be ashamed of the gospel. You don't want to be found out as one of those. Mark chapter 8 Verse 38, Jesus says, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him. Another reason we can be ashamed of the gospel is because it's so out of step with our culture. We live in a culture that is so contrary to the gospel that, that we're just kind of out of place, Right? And when, when, you, when people start finding out that you've, you believe this stuff, you can, you can suddenly be treated like you're odd at best and maybe even evil. A number of years ago, we had Peter Williams here who heads the Tyndale House at Cambridge University. It's a study house for Christian scholars to go and study. Harold Honer had studied there a great deal. And he said something I've never gotten over. He said, in, in, for many years, we had to defend with Cambridge students that the Bible is true and that the gospel is true. He said, now we have to defend that it's not evil. That we have seen our culture change to the point that, that the prevailing narrative in much of our society is that Christians are evil. We're haters, right? And sometimes Christians back off of their faith or act ashamed of the gospel because they don't want to be labeled as a hater. I told the story before in here that when I first was in seminary, I worked in a financial company um, in Uptown. And we had this wonderful secretary who was a churchgoer and the word fundamentalist came up. And I, and I was a seminary student, so I had to go into a, 
you know, very erudite explanation of what fundamentalism is. I said there's cultural fundamentalism, which is this and this and this. There's theological fundamentalism, which just believes that Jesus is the Son of God, that the Bible is authoritative, that, you know, the, the things that are the fundamentals of the faith. And I said, if you define it theologically, I'm a fundamentalist. And she said, no, you're not. I said, yeah, I am. I, I'm, I'm in seminary. I know these things. I paid money to know these things. I said, if you define fundamentalism theologically to hold to these fundamentals of faith, I'm a fundamentalist. She said, no, you're not. I said, why would you say that? Because she said, because I like you. Because she had, was a part of a culture that had a view of Christianity that was so contrary to even what I want to believe that she assumed that I had to be bad if I were one of those. Um, one of the reasons we act ashamed of the gospel is it's so out of, out of touch with much of the culture in which we live. 2 Timothy 1.18, Paul says, don't be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me as his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. One of the reasons we can be ashamed of the gospel is we don't want to suffer, right? Whether it's alienation, where it's a promotion to work, whatever it is, none of us really likes to suffer. But one of the reasons we can sometimes act as though we're ashamed of the gospel is we don't, we don't want that negative stuff that comes from it. And finally, 2 Timothy 1.12, that's why I'm suffering as I am, Paul says, but I'm not ashamed. I love this verse because I know whom I have believed and I'm convinced that he is able to guard that which I've entrusted to him for that day. I'm, I'm not ashamed because of what? Because of my faith. When Paul says I'm not ashamed of the gospel, what he's essentially saying is I believe it enough to overcome the negative consequences to whatever the world may dish out. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And quite frankly, the reality is with a lot of the cultural stuff that's going on, a lot of how Christians are being labeled, you know, we all struggle with being, a, there are sometimes a Christian will come out and say something, we think, oh man, I don't want to be identified with that. But this is, this is the greater essence. This is, are we ashamed of the gospel? The gospel is that good news that Jesus is the son of God who took on the form of human flesh, became fully man and fully God, lived a perfect life, died on the cross for the sins of the world, undid what the first Adam did, was resurrected on the third day so that whoever trusts in him can have eternal life. That's the gospel. And Paul says, I'm not ashamed of that. I want you to look through with me three things that he says about it in verses 16 and 17. First, the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of anyone who believes. The gospel is the power of God for salvation for anyone who believes. Do you think of the gospel as power? It's easy in this, in this generation to kind of feel weak with it, right? But according to the Apostle Paul, it's the power of God unto salvation. What does that mean? Uh, according to Scripture, the power of the gospel is it can take someone who's dead spiritually and make them alive. 
Every time someone professes and embraces faith in Jesus Christ, a, a spiritual resurrection happens because that which is dead becomes alive. That's powerful. According to the scripture, the power of the gospel is that it, it recreates the, a relationship with God that was broken. We are alienated by our disobedience and, and we are, are reunited with God by virtue of the gospel. And by the way, you read the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians, he goes on to say it, it brings that reconciliation when properly lived out in all kinds of relationships. The gospel reconciles broken relationships, first with God and then with others. It takes dead people and makes them alive. It takes broken relationships and restores them. It, it takes that which is old and makes it new. The power of the gospel is that it is the supernatural working of God to take what sin has destroyed and renovate it, rejuvenate it, make it alive, make it whole, and bring peace. That's the power of the gospel. Let me give you two examples of what Paul says in Romans uh, that the gospel does. Chapter 5, verse 9, since we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? The gospel saves us from the wrath of God. All the, the negative that you and I deserve for all the things that we've done that are inconsistent with his will, that hurt other people, the, the gospel is the means by which God's wrath is taken away because Jesus experienced it all on the cross. And then Romans 8.30, he says, those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. The gospel not only saves us negatively from the wrath, but it gives us glorification in the presence of God. It takes away the consequences of sin, but even more, it restores us to the fullness of what God created us to experience at creation. We have no concept of how big that is because we, we know nothing about life without sin. But glorification, when we are in the presence of God and when we are separated from this body of sin, Scripture says we will experience a, a life, an experience that is beyond anything we can comprehend because it will be consistent with what God intended when he first made us to live in perfect fellowship with him. That's the power of the gospel. And can I, can I tell you something? One of the reasons this is so important to me I think we Christians are dangerously close to forgetting that this is our greatest power. This is our greatest power. We're taking too many good things like political involvement, great thing. Society involvement, great thing. All these other things that very important, very good, but that's not our hope. The only power that we have is the power of the gospel. And, and if we lose sight of the power of the gospel to get so involved in all these other things, we will end up powerless and ineffective. Because this is our power. 
this gospel, this truth, that the God of the universe has intervened into society and takes people who are separated from God and quickens them, makes them alive, makes them his children, empowers them by his spirit, and creates in them new creature so that they have the ability to grow in Christ and represent him in a broken and dying world. That is our greatest power. And sometimes we get all caught up in other things and forget nothing is as power as this gospel. And the reality is, if the church were to disappear, all those other things would still keep going. The one thing the church offers that nothing does else does is this gospel. We dare not forget it. It is central to what we do. The Apostle Paul says it is the power of God unto salvation. Secondly, Verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and then the Gentile. Chronologically and theologically, God began his work with the Jew. He chose the Jew to work through the Jew to bring about his Messiah. We believe he will yet work in the nation of Israel to the Jewish people to bring them back to himself. But immediately at the beginning of the church in in Acts chapter 2, the message goes out to the Gentile world as well. He's just saying this is the way it started. But look what he says next. For the gospel, in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. The righteousness of God is revealed. The gospel reveals the righteousness of God. What do we learn about the righteousness of God from the gospel? Let me give you four things. First, we learn that it's uncompromising. God's righteousness is uncompromising, which is wholly different from you and me. We compromise on what's good all the time, don't we? We all have our list of accepted sins. Those are the ones that we do, right? Those are the ones we kind of look away from. We, we all have that tendency. Uh, Julie was talking to one of our dear friends the other day and she was talking about all the rules with masks and separate and all of the COVID stuff. And she said, you know, really we're COVID hypocrites because all of us pick and choose which, which ones of the rules we're going to follow at that particular time. You notice that? We're COVID hypocrites. We're, we're righteousness hypocrites. We judge other people for the very things that we do. We pick and choose the rules that we want to have. We compromise on righteousness. Why? Because we're not capable of it. But the gospel shows that God's righteousness is absolutely uncompromising. There's no room for compromising with God's righteousness. Why do I say that? Because he gave his son. If there were any wiggle room in his righteousness, he would not have given his son. What is more precious to any of us than our children? What matters more to us than the kids that God has given us? God's righteousness is so uncompromising that he paid the ultimate price so that we could receive it. No compromise. No willingness to accept any other standard. The only standard that was adequate for his righteousness is the perfect life of Jesus the Son of God. Secondly, God's righteousness is uncompromising, but it has room for mercy and grace. God's righteousness is uncompromising, but it has room for mercy and grace. I grew up in a wonderful little Presbyterian church in East Texas. 
Um, the the uh, pastor who baptized me was a grandfather figure. He was a, a, a short guy because greatness always is. And, and he, um, he read in seven languages. He, he was just a hugely significant man in my life. And, and um, he gave me a peppermint every Sunday after church. That's what I remember. I remember when he died. And, and, and he, he was a man who exuded the grace of God. He just loved people. And so I remember when I got to be about a teenager, I went to a camp that was legalistic. I had never seen legalism. There wasn't a lot of mercy or grace. And, and, and they had all these rules, and if you didn't live up to them perfectly, you got in trouble. Guess, guess who got in trouble? Um, I got called in by the founder of the organization. Um, you know. Kind of proud of it, really. But, but, um, um, I'd grown up in this culture of mercy and grace where we knew that we weren't perfect, but because we had been embraced by the love of God, we had a culture of embracing others in the love of God. And I was shocked at the meanness of legalism. Because legalism is the human substitute for true righteousness. And, and, and it, it, the, the love of God, the righteousness of God is amazing because it's totally uncompromising. But it is absolutely saturated with his mercy and grace because he paid the price himself. Isn't that amazing? Third, his righteousness is revealed in the gospel that assigns that righteousness to us by Jesus' death. Fundamentally, the, the idea of the gospel is that, that when we embrace the message that Jesus is our Savior, when, when we acknowledge him as the Son of God who died for our sins and personally entrust our righteousness upon him, our, our eternal future on him, he then, the theological term, imputes his righteousness to us. Let me tell you what that means. When God looks down from heaven, no matter what I'm doing as a servant of Christ, God sees Jesus. Stop and think about that. If I'm in the middle of lying, but as a child of God, when God looks down from heaven, he doesn't see that lie. He sees Jesus. When, when I'm in rebellion against what I know to be right, now God will bring discipline on my life, Hebrews chapter 12. I'm not saying he's totally unaware, but, uh, but theologically and as it relates to salvation and his blessing, when he looks down on me, no matter what I'm doing, no matter anything else, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. Does that shake your tree? Do you realize how amazingly loved that means you are? Because the world loves in transaction. Uh, the way the world loves is, I love you because you do this for me, right? That's, that's the way the world works. Uh, everything's a transaction. And as long as you do this for me, I will continue to love you. But, but 
God imputes our, he, he places our righteousness onto us so that we are the objects of his love as his children. And it's a covenant love. It's a promised love. It's undeniable and we can't wiggle our way out of it. That's the righteousness of God. It's uncompromising. But it allows for mercy and grace. And it's applied to us by the grace of God. One more thing. The righteousness gives opportunity for us to grow into conformity to him. The righteousness of salvation not only brings us into the family, but then creates the power and the opportunity to grow in conformity to him. Um, in American Christianity one of the good things we do is we emphasize that people need to come to faith they make, need to make a decision but sometimes we've taken that to the point that it's almost like once we close the deal then you're done you know you bought it and you're done and that's not the way salvation works in Scripture. It, it is, it, once you've embraced Jesus, you are saved. It is your identity from then on. But, but, but the Scripture views that salvation as continuing to work in us, to bring us into conformity. And, and it's called sanctification, ultimately in glorification. But, but salvation is an ongoing process that is not completed until we're in God's presence and glorification. That's what theologians will tell you. So what does that mean? It means that the righteousness of God is intended to continue to shape us so that we become more like him over time. That we conform to it over time so that, so that we start here, but by God's grace, we never stop growing or changing so that we're more like him. And finally, I'm running out of time. It's by faith from first to last. For in God, the gospel of righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. It is written, the righteous will live by faith. The only way you can get that righteousness is faith. You know how I know whether I really believe that? By humility check. By humility check. Because the more convinced I am that the only way I can be accepted by God is trusting in what he's done, then there's no room for pride. There's no room for comparison. There's no room for judging others. As soon as I start climbing up on my soapbox and start comparing myself to others that I'm better, then I'm acting as though I've got righteousness that comes any other way. As, as soon as I begin to feel pretty good about how good I am, I indicate that I've, I've come to think that the righteousness I have, I've earned rather than only have by faith. And, and men and women, when we fail, more often than not, it's, it's because pride has replaced the humility that the gospel demands. Uh, there's an old hymn that, I didn't say this in the first service, they would have maybe thrown rocks at me, but... Uh, only a sinner saved by grace. It's one of those hymns that always sounded like a, 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 a song you would sing in a bar. Um, there are a number of those hymns and I always got distracted by them as a kid. Only a sinner saved by grace. But you know, it's, it's, it's who we are. It's all we have. 
The only way we have righteousness is, is humble faith of embracing what God has done. And when pride sneaks in, Satan has divided our hearts and moved us away from the full embrace of what he alone can do. We can't earn it. We dare not demand it. But to the extent we lean into it, it will never stop changing us. And can I say one other thing? The gospel we share is greater than any other differences we might have. The gospel we share is greater than any other differences we might have. Because when we embrace with humility the gospel, that is such big news. All the other things I disagree with you about are dwarfed. It's nothing. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God unto salvation. It takes dead people and makes them alive. He takes estranged people and makes them friends of God. It makes broken people whole and old things new. Let's not be ashamed of the gospel. Pray with me. Father, we thank you that the message we have is not just an opinion. It's not just a doctrine. It is, in fact, a message that saves people, makes people alive, changes the trajectory of our hearts. Lord, we pray that we would never let our pride get in the way of the humility that comes in embracing you. And the power of the gospel would be demonstrated in our lives today, tomorrow, and for many days to come. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.